Savannah. The very word conjures up visions of elegant mansions shrouded by graceful Spanish moss clinging to the branches of towering live oaks. But that vision wasn't always a given, and it's a fight every day to protect the city's historic character from the ravages of time and being loved to death by throngs of tourists who flock to the city in ever-increasing numbers. Fortunately for Savannah, Daniel Carey is leading the effort at the historic Savannah Foundation to protect the hostess city of the South. Grab a cool drink and sit back as we sit down with Daniel to learn about the history and future of historic Savannah on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today we are joined from sunny Savannah, Georgia with Daniel Carey, who is the president and CEO of the Historic Savannah Foundation. Daniel's a native of Louisville, Kentucky, and after graduating from the University of Notre Dame, he received a master's degree in folk studies and historic preservation from Western Kentucky University. After that, he began working for the Office of Historic Properties in Frankfort, Kentucky, and then moved to Charleston, South Carolina to work for the National Trust for Historic Preservation, after which he served in the Southern Field Office. Uh, he moved to Fort Worth, Texas, to run the Southwest Office for the National Trust. And then he began his tenure at the Historic Savannah Foundation in December of 2008. Daniel, it is a pleasure to have you with us today here on PreserveCast. Thank you, Nick. It's nice to be with you. So you've had a really interesting career um, and had the opportunity, obviously, to work on a lot of different preservation issues. What got you into this? When did you get the bug? I mean, you grew up in a place rich with history. Is Was it from childhood that you wanted to do this, or did you kind of move into this type of career? Well, that would be a good storyline, wouldn't it? Um, but I think <laughs> we should always uh, stick to the truth and, and just admit that I was a law school dropout. Um, so while I may have had some some sensitivity to preservation, and I will credit my mother for that, who sort of introduced me little by little, I think, to the value of history and antiques and architecture. But I was sort of on the traditional path to uh, becoming a lawyer, and I took a time out and said, I don't think I want to do this, and found um, this interesting graduate program at Western Kentucky University, and it mixed some things that I found interesting together. And um, I pursued that and and never looked back. And, you know, that was great. It led to an internship and um, ultimately full-time employment. And and then I, I never thought anything about the law again. (laughs) <laughs> so you your first first job out of uh, preservation school was doing what? What was your first job in the in the field? Yeah, I was working for the Office of Historic Properties, which is a state agency in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, and it was responsible for all the state-owned historic sites. So I was primarily sort of helping with, um, I guess. Uh, content management, interpretation, um, collections, you know, bordering on some museum work, but also how those places could 
uh, better engage the public. And you did that for a few years and then made the jump to the National Trust? Well, uh, we shouldn't overlook my, my time in Louisville, um, and that was with the Department of Historic Preservation and Archives. Okay. And that's actually where I got a lot of really good field work experience doing National Register nominations and serving on a, on a review board, a review commission, and just really uh, kind of going deep in terms of the survey inventory and developing that knowledge of historic resources. So that was that was important groundwork for me. Yeah, and, and that did, so then I apologize for jumping there, but does that then set the stage for the trust? Is that when you jumped over? It did, and that was by invitation. I will always be flattered at the invitation to you were come work. For, well, not quite. I don't <laughs> think they had head, headhunters back then, <laughs> but it was a through the front door. But it was it was a nice opportunity, and, and uh, personally and professionally, it, it suited me, and um, and and that really was a, a great awakening in many respects, because. Instead of just working in one community or one state, the southern office was working throughout an entire region. And I really, you know, became exposed to all the good work that uh, private individuals and nonprofits were doing because my first two stints were state government and local government. And it was great to sort of uh, remove the shackles of um, government and say, look, what's possible and do this and, and um, work with people and have that, that backing of the National Trust, which was helpful. And how long were you with the Trust? Almost 18 years. Wow. And so give people a sense for the kind of work that you would do in the Southern Field Office. So obviously you're working with private individuals and nonprofits, as you said, but uh, give people a sense for the kind of support that you would provide during that time period? Sure. Uh, it was um, it was really enriching, I have to say. And, and it was, uh, in part, I think, advancing the, the mission and the programs of the National Trust. So the, the planning grant programs, the organizational development work that we did with statewide and local organizations, promoting programs like the 11 most endangered. So it, it was a lot of, of the good things that the National Trust was doing and taking those to the field and then in return working with people who were on the front lines and seeing what they were doing and trying to help them and then taking those things back to the National Trust saying how do we craft programs and technical assistance to help these people be successful. So it was kind of um, a 50-50 operation. Any big project from that? I mean, 18 years is a long time to ask for one, but is there are there are there some that you point to that you look back on and are pretty proud of? Well, many, of course, but I think the most gratifying uh, came about when I uh, became the director of the Southwest office in Fort Worth, because then it was really my responsibility. So, you know, we had... Um, some great work um, with 11 most endangered nominations, um, one in particular, the Crager House down in Brownsville, Texas, um, the um, Statler Hotel in Dallas, 
Wheelock Academy up in Oklahoma, Bathhouse Row in Hot Springs, Arkansas. So, you know, that work from Arkansas to Oklahoma, New Mexico, Texas, uh, and Oklahoma was was really rewarding. And the other thing that we did was establish um, statewide preservation funds for each of those states. So we had uh, we, we raised money to have endowed dedicated funds for planning grants and intervention grants to, you know, catalyze preservation. So presumably that's states. still providing support, right? I mean, that's those, yeah, that legacy, uh, I believe, is alive and well, and those states are still enjoying that. The, the, the private individuals and foundations that that gave that money certainly appreciated and that money should be roiling around in those states. That's pretty cool. And and good to see the good work continuing on. So you then moved on from the National Trust after 18 years and landed where? Landed here in Savannah and and I think it's been a natural fit, uh, a natural transition because I've been here almost 10 years and that's because of my grounding and commitment to the field. I've always wanted to be in the field working closely with people doing the preservation work, working on the front lines, shoulder to shoulder. Didn't want to be an administrator, didn't want to be removed. And that's what I enjoyed about, you know, field work at the National Trust. But now I'm just steeped in it. And it's, you know, it's it's still rewarding. So it's nice to be the CEO and run a, a big operation. But it's also nice to still be involved in the projects on a day-to-day basis. And and arguably in one of America's, I mean, all cities are historic. Everything has history. But, I mean, people look to Savannah and they think of history. I mean, it's just dripping with it. You can't turn around and not bump into something that's either beautiful or historic or both. Or someone that thinks it is, and they and they grab me and tell me so. <laughs> and and but give people a sense. I mean, you mentioned it's a big operation, historic Savannah Foundation. What's the history there? Um, what did you walk into? Uh, how how big's the staff? What kind of work do you do at Historic Savannah? Well, um, we I think we look a lot bigger than we really are, but we don't ever want to dissuade anybody from that perception. Um, we're not huge in the sense of numbers of employees or budgets, but I can tell you we're about a $1.2 million annual budget. We have, uh, you know, we have about seven full-time folks in the preservation side of things we do. We're very proud of our Davenport House Museum, which um, has a staff and is very well run and was ground zero for preservation in 1955. That's where it all began. We we intervened and saved that building and, and thus started Historic Savannah Foundation. But importantly, we didn't stop with that victory or that success. We moved on to developing a revolving fund, which we learned from our friends in Charleston. And I think it was that experience that made us understand that real estate is the name of the game. I like to quote Lee Adler when appropriate and when it's just a, a general audience, um, that they can learn that preservation isn't, you know, just some hobby for well-heeled dilettantes, that it's it's relevant and it's valid 
and it makes a difference in a community. And this revolving fund that we have, well, um, I would say perfected in, in some respects, has saved more than 370 endangered historic buildings and counting and has transformed the city from what was a moribund and blighted downtown and surrounding neighborhoods into the into the beautiful place that it is today that attracts 14 million visitors and um, lots of new residents who see it and then say, I want to come and be part of that. And Historic Savannah has just played such a critical role. And you mentioned Lee Adler, who is you know, prominent in the, the history of your organization, also prominent in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and played a lot of interesting roles. And he, and he actually came up here to Maryland, as I'm sure he went elsewhere, and talked to groups like ours and, um, and others about the benefits of revolving funds. He sort of became one of the early people to go around the country talking about that, um, which is sort of interesting. He was the... He was, sorry, he was the, the, I called him the Johnny Appleseed of revolving funds. Again, we would always acknowledge and credit um, Historic Charleston Foundation for, for we think, beginning um, and starting revolving funds. But as I said, I think we like to think that we perfected it and then took it around the country. Lee was such a charismatic leader and could be so persuasive that he took that show on the road and he would just talk about what we've done in Savannah and people would be, you know, enthralled with that. And I I really do believe that um, his work spawned dozens of other revolving funds around the country. And it's, it's why I think um, preservation is as relevant today as it is because it is about real estate it's about the economy stupid and it's about um you know uh, saving places and planning for the future it's not just about um protecting old architecture and bricks and mortar because you love it it's about saying you know when oglethorpe established savannah in 1733 he had a vision and he had a plan, a literal plan. And we're here today, almost 300 years later, enjoying and living on that plan, but also preserving it. Why? Because it works. It worked for 750 people, and now it works for 150,000 people, plus 14 million visitors. So that's the kind of stuff that we're, that we're trying to do at Historic Savannah Foundation is, is protect this place for uh, for the future, not for future generations so much, but literally for our shared future. So give us a sense for the revolving fund today. I mean, you've mentioned that you've touched hundreds of properties previously. How many do you have sort of in the queue right now? How many do you own? And what's the, si- I mean, if you're comfortable telling us, like, what's the size of the fund? Like, what what kind of fund are, are you managing that allows you to have that kind of impact? People might be in- impressed or interested to hear that. Yeah, well, let, let's talk about that, because the first thing we want to do is bust the myth that you have to have a million dollars, because you don't. If you're smart and you know how to option properties or acquire properties through gift or, or just have some temporary control over those properties, then you can do it on a dime. And that's kind of what we do. Our fund is not that huge. Um, it waxes and wanes, depending on how much we have we have going. But I'd say we probably have about a half million dollars in in uh, available cash reserves to acquire properties. Which in terms of real um, estate is really not that much. 
it's not that much, um, but that's enough for what we need. That, right. that allows us to do what we want to do. Sure, we could do more with more, no question, but it keeps us on our toes. You know, some projects and some some buildings we might win on. We might clear a little bit when we when we uh, acquire and stabilize and mothball and flip. Others we might lose, but but of course we're we're gaining per our mission. So you know, we take those, those as well. And in the end, we kind of break even and, uh, you know, we take care of what we need to take care of. We're opportunistic when something good comes along, but we also say, Hey, you know what, if we don't do this one, nobody else will. So we're going to have to step in and do it. And so the properties that you're doing now, would they be in the area of, you know, these 14 million kind of congregate, you know, within sort of the, the historic core, um, are they are they within that area, or are you kind of branching out throughout the city at this point? We are working throughout the city and the county. Um, you know, I listened to your podcast with Danielle Del Sol with PRC in New Orleans, and it's interesting the the View Carre and Savannah's National Historic Landmark District are both about one square mile, and so that's packing a lot of people into that area. So little by little, we're saying you know there are in Savannah and Chatham County, there are uh, at least 15 other historic districts throughout the area, and we work in all of those districts. So our revolving fund, while it started downtown in the landmark district, and on rare occasion, we'll still see an opportunity for us to do something in the landmark district, but mostly the market takes care of it. Meanwhile, though, the surrounding neighborhoods are still in play, and that's where we do our work. We're like missionaries. We're on the leading edge. We're trying to get out there and cultivate something in in areas that are vacant and blighted and deteriorated, and that's where we do our work. And then others follow suit, and I think there are a lot of similarities among the work that um, that is being done by PRC in New Orleans and other communities around the country. But but yes, we we are. Um, all about really trying to revitalize neighborhoods and do it in, in such a way that it's a, a gentle rise. It's not a spike. It's something that's sort of organic and healthy and is done um, with, with some public money, some private money. Um, but little by little, the neighborhood kind of bounces back and, and they manage themselves and then we move on. And so... Obviously, the revolving fund is a big piece of your work, um, but what else is confronting Historic Savannah Foundation? What other things are you working on? You know, you mentioned the similarities between you and New Orleans, and there they're sort of being loved to death by so many tourists. Similar challenges, I would imagine, in Savannah? All too familiar. We we have a, a good problem, but it is a problem nonetheless, and it's tourism management. We have to be better at it. We're we're working at it. I think we're better at it than we were five years ago and ten years ago. But you you can't pack that many people into such a finite space <clears throat> and expect everything to just be okay because this is not an entertainment district. This is not Disney world. This is real. It's authentic. That's why people are coming here and we have to keep it that way. And the reason that Savannah and other cities like Savannah are successful is because of the resident. I never want to overlook the value of the resident and the private property owner because they're the ones that 
are the real champions for this and the real heroes. They take care of their properties and and they want to live here and make this a 24-7, 365 city um, and, and not just some playground for others to come and enjoy. But how do you possibly do that? In ter- I mean, not to interject here, but how how is that possible when the value of the property goes up so high and it almost is to the point where people can't really even, you know, average person or even a really wealthy person can't possibly afford to live in the district. And it kind of becomes that playground. What do you do to keep it? Have you guys seized on any opportunities? Is there any thought on how that's done to keep it a livable, somewhat affordable place? Mm-hmm. We're certainly giving it our all and we're doing it in partnership with others. It isn't an exclusive effort of historic Savannah foundation, but um, I would say that I'm sort of a middle class. If I'm if on a good day, maybe I'm upper middle class, but I'm able to live downtown. Okay. Um, and 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 make this work, and and others are as well. But I'd say that you know, thanks to the Downtown Neighborhood Association, to the City of Savannah, to Visit Savannah, and the Tourism Leadership Council. And, and some other interests that we're all kind of recognizing and pulling together on this issue because it is about sustainability. If, if we kill the goose that lay the golden egg, we're in deep trouble because, um, you know, a significant portion of our economy is based on, on visitors. So, um, so what do we do? Well, we have, I think we have good and progressive regulations on short-term vacation rentals. Um, we are expanding the universe of, of attractions here to go out into the county so that not everybody just has to uh, cruise around in the same square mile. There's plenty to see and do throughout Savannah and Chatham County. Um, we have uh, we have undertaken and adopted a tourism management plan. We took our a cue again from Charleston on that. They've been at this a little bit longer, and we're learning from them. Um, you know, we're trying to manage um, uh, motorized vehicles and times of operation, and so you know, it's just a, it's an ongoing sort of dynamic situation and we're willing to experiment and try things. It's not perfect, but as I said, we're better than we were, but we know we can be even better down the road. Right. And I guess at the end of the day, it is a good problem to have in that you do have people who love to come to your place, which not every city deals with that. Right. And that's actually helpful in in its own right, because those perspectives, I think, help us. And, you know, I think really it's a question of what are we doing with the enormous revenues that we're gaining from these visitors. And I realize, um, you know, most of that is going to go to the general operating fund of the city. But I think we need to be smarter about any kind of preservation fee, a head tax, or anything like that. And where's that money being used? Is it being used to, to promote the city more? Or is it being used to take care of the resources that people are coming here to see in the first place? And we hope it's more of the latter than the former. Interesting. Let's, let's do a good job of stewarding um, and growing and enhancing what we have 
so that people will always want to come back for that first-class authentic experience and not come here to see something they could see any other place. So just sort of wrapping up with Savannah before we sort of move on to the conclusion here, but um, there, recently there were some headlines about threats to the National uh, Landmark District. Um, you want to talk about that at all or, or what you guys are facing there? Is it, is it tied into this whole tourism issue? It is to a degree, uh, and it's it's been um, coming about for some time. We're fortunate that the National Park Service, who manages the National Historic Landmark Program, periodically does assessments and integrity reviews on NHL districts, and we were overdue. And I, and I reminded them of that. I said, look, we are kind of under a lot of pressure here, and I would hope that we could be advanced up the line in terms of getting a fresh assessment. It had just been, you know, too long, more than 10 years since we had had one. And they um, thankfully and uh, graciously obliged us and undertook a study. And the, the study recommended that the landmark district uh, be considered a, a threatened resource, which is pretty dramatic. And uh, that's a report recommendation to the Park Service. The Park Service has to digest that and make a decision. But the report in and of itself was important because it sort of it rang that fire bell and said, hey, let's pay attention to what's going on here. And the big question is, how do we respond to that? We can react to that recommendation. I don't recommend that. Um, because everybody will have opinions about that. Oh, we're threatened, or no, we're not threatened at all. We're better off than we ever have been. The important thing is how do we respond to it? And in responding to it, this is where the Tourism Management Plan, a Tourism Advisory Committee, you know, more sensitive planning and far thinking in our planning will all come into play because we have to take care of this place. Otherwise, you know, it's a fragile resource. And I think that's the point of the report. It's not just going to take care of itself or be magically protected. It's our job to do it. And we have to roll up our sleeves and get at it. Which is sort of just a reinforcement of preservation in general. It just doesn't happen. It has to be done. It has to be done. And it is not always popular. And it is not always immediate. It is the long view, and it is um, a process. And, you know, if in 1955 somebody said, what are we going to do with that, you know, hulking Davenport house? What what could ever be done with that? Well, we're fortunate that 45,000 people go through there. And they don't go through there just to get an object-oriented experience. They're getting the preservation experience. They're getting the story about why this happened how it happened, and how it can happen in your community. So we don't want our success story to be limited to Savannah. We want the whole world to share it. But it does start and end with people, people who have a sensitivity for this and appreciation for this and are not interested in just a quick buck. They're interested in long-term investment. So that's a good uh, way to maybe make a transition here to the final topic, which we wanted to talk about briefly uh, in terms of people who are interested in making a difference, um, you and I have been involved in, uh, along with many others, in establishing the National Preservation Partners Network. Do you want to give that a quick plug, let people know what that's all about and what we may hear from that group in the future? Yes, this is very exciting. And, and I have to say I'm bullish on this organization. It's been around in some form or another for 25 
plus years. And what it is, is it's a collection, a network of all of the statewide and local preservation groups from around the country, principally nonprofit organizations, the folks that are in there, you know, kind of just making it happen uh, at the local level or in state capitals. And these are the professionals and the volunteers that say, hey, this is an important enterprise and we're all here to do it, but we have to learn from each other. We, we don't do this in isolation, just as we've learned from Charleston and New Orleans and other cities and, and, and just as other cities have learned from Savannah. We want to share that. And, and it's a, so it's a support group. It's kind of a trade association. But most importantly, we're really just trying to advance the preservation movement and do it in such a way that we're educating people, we're advocating for good policies, and we're doing it in a collegial atmosphere. When we get together twice a year, it, it's almost like a retreat setting and, and a reunion. We, you know, we feed off each other. It's great, great energy, really positive feelings and good spirit. And so we, we, we feed on that, uh, on each other, as I said, and then we, we, we go out from there and we do more good things and we see them again a half year later and we start sharing so that we're all a little bit smarter and all a little bit better at what we do. I think it's a, a fantastic plug for it. And hopefully if people who are listening or who are involved with a statewide or a local preservation group or are interested in getting involved, they can go uh, right now on Facebook and find it at National Preservation Partners Network or very in the near future, find it on the web at prespartners.org. So, right. Daniel, before we depart and, and let you get back to the important work of saving and preserving Savannah, we ask this question of everyone uh, who comes on PreserveCast. Most people dread it the entire time, which is, uh, what is your favorite historic site or place? Yes, I, I hate the question. I hate you for asking it. <laughs> and um, I'm going to take the, the deft political way out. Nice. I'm going to say that I'm going to say the Davenport House here in Savannah, Georgia, because that is where preservation began here in 1955. The seven ladies that uh, stepped in and purchased it and said, hey, enough, enough of this demolition. We're going to save this one and simultaneously started Historic Savannah Foundation that started a movement that saved a city. So that's got to be it. Pretty good answer, even though it was sort of a political dodge. We'll take it. (laughs) Well, it's that's the nature of the business. <laughs> Daniel, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for all of the, the great work that you've done, not only in Savannah, but all across the South and the Southwest. Um, you know, I think there are places across the country where you've, you've made a big difference, and we appreciate it and look forward to seeing all the good work that you do in Savannah in the future. Well, Nick, you're a good friend and a good colleague. I love working with you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service, and in partnership with the Anacostia Trails Heritage Area. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. You've given me
Our website is made possible by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. This week's podcast was produced and engineered by Rich Grouser. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. And most importantly, thank you for listening and preserving.